You're listening to This Naked Mind with Annie Grace. Hi, this is Annie Grace and welcome to This Naked Mind podcast. And I am here with Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Welcome, Ben. I'm so excited to have you on. Annie, I love you. You're amazing. Happy to be with you. Yeah. So I had the the coolest experience of um, meeting you, Dr. Hardy, in real life in Mexico at an event we were both at. And it was just like mind blowing for me because I feel like there's just people that you meet that have a process and a way of, of thinking through information. And I hadn't heard, I'd, I'd heard of a few of your books before. So you've written so many books. I've, I've heard of, my husband has personalities and permanent on his shelf. Um, I've heard of willpower doesn't work. I hadn't read it, but since we met, I have like gone through and ordered and read all of your books. <laughs> which has been really fun and just such a, a cool deep dive into how you think about things, which is, is just so exciting. So um, most recently you wrote, you wrote this book, 10 X is easier than two X. I see you've worn it out with uh, I've the, worn silver. It out. the silver's all worn out on the front. <laughs> the silver's worn out on the front. The whole thing is literally marked up. And um, this book is like for visionary entrepreneurs, world-class entrepreneurs. And it has been, game-changing for me. I have, I have made so many shifts about thinking about my organization, my mission, what is, what is next for this naked mind? What is the impact I want to make in the world? And it's just been so freeing because at the core of the book, at least for me, one of the things I took out of it is exactly the same as how I coach people with their relationship with alcohol is that you know best for you, human, you know best for you. And that was like so empowering. Totally. Yeah. I think that uh, one of the big concepts of 10X is, is easier than 2X is, is that all progress starts by telling the truth. And if I could define the difference between the two in as simple of terms as I can, 2X is really uh, an operating system where you're trying to do more of what you're already doing. So it's kind of a linear mindset and it's really letting the past drive your present and your present, your current situation to drive what you're doing in the future, which is 2X. You're just doing more of what you're already doing, whereas 10X is pretty much the opposite where you, you, you get connected with, you know, what I'll call your future self. Imagination is more important than knowledge as Albert Einstein would say, and you really get connected with what you really want. And you got to peel away those layers and be honest with yourself. As you were just saying, you know, what's best. And you also know what you most deeply want. And then you start to really get connected with that future self. And you ultimately, rather than two X where you're letting the past drive the present and the present to drive the future, you're actually doing the opposite. You're letting the future drive the present and you're ultimately operating from, you know, abundance and choice and, that takes you on a very different rabbit hole where you're letting the future literally shape your decisions. Like you're like, okay, um, this doesn't work anymore. Even though it worked in the past, I guess my future is going to be driving the ship. And uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a much more uh, intuitive, but also a lot more honesty approach to life. And like, for me, I was like, okay, not only is this so impactful for me personally, as I look at my, uh, this naked mind, the organization, this naked mind Institute, you know, the coach certification, but I couldn't help like I wanted to have you on this podcast, which is primarily for people who are exploring their relationship with alcohol for, for three reasons. Number one is because your, your mindset and your outlook on the world, I just find second to none. And there's such an overlap between people who are entrepreneurial and people who find themselves in addiction. Like it's, mm. it's, it's like such an overlap and it's, we can channel that energy that, that need to try new things that need to make a mark on the world that, you know, restlessness that we have inside of ourselves at, I think a higher level in some, in some cases, 
through addiction, which I did for years, or you can channel it through, you know, wh whether it's entrepreneurship or some other giving back. So that that's number one. Number two, and I really want to get into is some of your other work, like your book, Future Self Now, and, and Willpower Doesn't Work. And number three is because even in the 10X versus 2X book, I'm like, what you just described is exactly what you have to do to change your relationship with alcohol in a way that doesn't feel painful to you in your future, right? Like there's, there's two ways to change your relationship with alcohol. One is doing more of the same, which is trying to take breaks, trying to use willpower, trying to um, force yourself to not drink, even though you believe drinking is really great. And then actually in this naked mind, and you might not have any idea about this, but we actually, especially in our path program, say for the first two months, you stop trying to stop drinking like throw away everything, you know, stop trying to stop, continue drinking. And let's just educate you and, and get you a different mindset so that you're bringing a radically different mindset into the, into the behavior change. And that's why it's, it's so effective. And it just was so mirrored. I'm like, I'm taking a 10 X approach to this change in people's lives, which is so mind blowing. And I love it. Yeah, no, you totally are. I, I love your work and I love your approaches to addiction. And I, I just to like keep it super simple, I look at uh, 10X as a psychology. So in like, from my view, a 10X psychology comes down to your identity. And obviously uh, addiction is going to have a lot to do with identity and kind of what I would think is being really rooted in your past and also being a, avoidant towards your past and not transforming your past and, you know, ultimately getting connected to your future self. And so just to give the three, I view 10X psychology as your identity, your time, which for me is really all about the quality of your attention. And obviously from an addiction standpoint, your attention probably is on the addiction a lot more than on what you really want to be focusing on. And then obviously becoming a leader and moving forward in your life. But the uh, I'll just hit on identity and attention real quick, just for a second. And that's really about first off realizing, and there's a lot of research on this with future self is, is that you, I think a big, big part of identity is realizing that you're not your past self. And, and even, even if call it whatever addiction you had was really useful for a time. One of my good friends, Joe, Joe Polish talks about how addiction is not necessarily a problem, but it's a solution to a problem, but it's the, it's either the best solution you've got, or it's just, a solution that you're using, but it's not, it's, it's ultimately not going to be the best solution for the long-term future. But when I look at my past self, my past self may have done things, made choices, had solutions that are no longer relevant to my current self. Even my past self a year ago, or even five months ago, I just think a big part of identity is realizing you're not the same person you were in the past. You're not even the same person you were 20 minutes ago when you first started this podcast, you now are a different person. And so recognizing that you're not that same person gives you flexibility to love that past self, have compassion and empathy, but you don't need to overly identify with them. You don't, you know, so I'm one of those people, I'm not one of those people who believes once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That may be like really bad, bad taste for this environment. Cause I know AA is so important and I love AA, uh, but I don't believe I'm my past self, but what I'm really trying to do is get connected to my future self. And there's a lot of research on this. Actually, I want to show you something. This is not even my book, but this book came out yesterday. Um, oh, wow. It's called Your Future Self by Dr. Hal Hirschfield. I actually read the whole thing. Um, and it's all about the research on future self. I actually referenced his work a lot in my book on future self. And so that's a cool book. But one of the things he says, and this will just be kind of where I end here and you go wherever you want, but the research is really, really clear. And I think it's also really important for addiction is, is that the more connected you get to your future self, um, 
the less of a magnifying glass you put on the present. What happens is, and, and he breaks this down a lot in his research, is, is that if you're unconnected to your future self, meaning you don't have empathy and connection to your future self, then your future self feels like a stranger. They feel really far away. You have no connection between your present actions and what happens to your future self. Whereas the goal is to get really connected to your future self, understand what matters to them, and then ultimately bring them emotionally close so that the decisions you make here and now uh, are really beneficial and ultimately end up shifting to the identity of your future self. And from a 10X perspective, you start operating from your future self. But one of the things he talks about is if you're not connected to your future self, then what you end up doing is putting a magnifying glass on the present. And you overly concern yourself with what you want in the present. And you also make decisions based on what your present emotions dictate. So I might be, you know, anxious or stressed out, or honestly, even just working on a, on a project and hit some form of emotional resistance. If I'm not connected to my future self, I'm going to put a magnifying glass on that emotional resistance and I'm going to overvalue it. And I'm going to under undermine the emotions of my future self. And then I'm just going to make decisions purely in the present for short-term dopamine. And so that's why they say there's a massive battle between the present and the future self. And if the future self is really far away, then the present is going to be all that matters. And obviously that's going to lead you to some really short-term bad thinking. Well, that's so fascinating. And it's, it, it, I both hear that as like, almost I could hear that as, as contradictory to all of this mindfulness, be in this moment, be in the present, but you have presented this to me in a way that your present moment, how your present moment is actually shaped where it's actually not contradictory at all. Yeah. I think that, uh, I love mindfulness. I think being mindful is powerful. And I think that, I think that being aware of the present and being aware of your environment and, um, thinking about how those things are impacting you is key. I mean, one, one of my favorite books on mindfulness is actually called Mindfulness by Ellen Langer. And Ellen Langer, um, she was a Harvard psychologist for many, many years, but she wrote a, she was like the queen of mindfulness research. And her whole view of it all was really that mindfulness largely is about uh, the impact of the context and how that context is impacting you. And so I think it's really powerful to think about like, who am I around and how is that impacting me and stuff like that. But also from a psychology standpoint, the present isn't all that is. And I think that that's kind of where that conversation falls short is, is like, obviously, if you've got a lot of unresolved trauma in your past, you're dragging that past forward with you. There's a great quote that says the past is never past. Uh, the past is never finished. It's never even passed. And so like everything I'm doing right now is going to be large. It's going to be hugely based on how I view my past, how I have framed it. If I've resolved it, if I feel good about it, if I feel bad about it, but also my future. Anyone who's listening to this is probably listening because they have goals of overcoming addiction or things like that. And so that's what has led them to even being interested in this conversation. And so, of course, our future matters as well. And there's a lot of research on that, that um, like what you're doing and what you see and what you're paying attention to and what even matters to you in the present, what you'll even pay attention to or see has a lot to do with what you think for your future. So past, present and future psychologically all exist at the same time. And it's really about refining your past, getting, you know, transforming it so it's more useful and also getting clear and clear on your future and more connected to it so that your present is is uh, is useful, it's directional, and so that you have the space to enjoy it. For me, this, and when you talked <clears throat> with me about this the first time, it was it was such an eye-opener for me because I, I think we tend to compartmentalize these concepts, right? And so you can get so into this idea. They're holistic. Right, right. So you can get so into this idea of I'm not doing it right if I'm not fully present, if I'm not fully in the moment. And and we're discounting the fact that, yeah, you can, you can train your muscle of your brain to come back to the present faster. And I love but it. Until you make peace with your past and get excited about your future, the quality of your present moment is 
it's still going to be impacted. Like as soon as you get up from the cushion, you're still going to carry both your past and your future with you. So what I've heard you talk about is like, tell a better story about your past and then tell a bigger story about your future. And then, and, and it's this holistic thing because I remember being so frustrated, especially when I was younger with my parents, was just like, okay, you feel anxious, just meditate, just be in the moment. And I'm like, for, for, uh, literally my reaction to that so much. It's like, okay, I find the moment to be kind of boring sometimes. Like, sorry to say, like, yeah, there's almost so, so much I can notice about this room before I want to start dreaming or get caught up in my mental movies. Like I like a lot of my mental movies. A hundred percent. I mean, this, this hits on a lot of what makes human beings higher intelligence and different from call it different species, plants and animals. This is that so like there's been a re- lot of research on this is that like if you're even just thinking about the future, like you and I can sit and think out thousands of different potential scenarios for our future, maybe even for the rest of June. I mean, I could map out even for the rest of this week or even how I spend the rest of my day, I could start to really think through like what, what are all a bunch of different options? Maybe I want to go be spontaneous and get a steak dinner with my wife, you know, even though my plan was actually just to go home and make some spaghetti. Like, you know what I mean? I'm, all I'm saying is, is like, as human beings, we can map out tons of different futures and then ultimately like make thoughtful decisions about which ones are useful, cost-benefit analyses and stuff like that. Plants and animals do not do that. Like they're a lot more reactive to, to just the, you know, stimulus and response kind of thing. And so like, that's a human superpower. They actually call it prospection in psychology, but also your past. I think that this is where a lot of people have given... I guess you could say criticism of mainstream self-help and even just mainstream motivation or rah-rah material is, is that it never really addressed, call it trauma. And that you could, you could tell me every single day that I should just have a, a great mindset and that I should just, you know, sit down and focus for three hours on my most important task. But if I have a lot of unresolved issues from my past, a, a lot of deep rooted trauma, like my ability to do that is going to be very difficult, even if I'm listening to the greatest stuff, uh, even if I'm applying the greatest tactics or techniques for getting myself into flow. If I have a lot of unresolved issues that I'm still avoiding, it's going to be very hard for me not to be anxious and to, and to keep avoiding other things and distracting myself, whether that's through distractions, addictions, or other things. And so, yes, you do have to continuously transform, heal, evolve your past, uh, let go of the past you know, forgive your former self and all involved in various equations and truly get to the place of what would be called post-traumatic growth, where you feel like the past was great, like where it happened for you and where you're continuing to glean more and more from it. Where I, I see it as you either view the past as an asset or a liability. If it's mm-hmm. an asset, you're continuing to gain more and more from it and your present and future are better because you went through that versus a liability where you're still blaming your present and future downsides on the past. Um, so yeah, I think the past and future are very powerful, very important for how we live our lives. Yeah. And if we just, we discount them, like you said, we're doing ourselves, we're, we're like bypassing. It's a, it's like, we're trying to push this, you know, big balloon under the, it'll eventually come back and hit you hard. (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't actually change the thing you're trying to self self self-medicate away from. And, and I just, I love that concept of if we can look at our past as an asset, like how powerful is that? I I think that 
we actually just got finished with our two-day um, kickoff to our six-month coach certification process. And at the very end of the two days, we did five journaling exercises. And one of them was being grateful for something you didn't want at the time. And it was it was trying to find five different areas where you could be find gratitude. You could transform into gratitude for a very painful situation that you had in the past. And what I've noticed in my own journey is that as you build that muscle, it can almost become automatic to where, you know, I had a, I had a, <laughs> had an experience earlier this week where a friend of mine sent around a photo from a bunch of us that were at a wedding circa 2014, which was the year I stopped drinking, but I stopped drinking in December. This photo was in June. So I look at this photo and I was like, it's funny. I don't really remember drinking at, at the wedding. She was in AA. So we, there was no alcohol at the wedding, but I was like, I don't remember the night. And they're like, yeah, that's because you had a full bar at your house. Cause we all went to your house after that. And because we all like, it was just a disaster. I have no memories of this night. And I had so much regret because like to, to have a moment of your life, this one life you get and to not have any memories, it just filled me with this, like just pit in my stomach. But it was probably not even 30 seconds later that I looked around. I was like, oh, but that's why I'm even doing what I'm doing with my life. Like it was so quick that I was able to make that moment of regret and shame to be something that I'm grateful for. And it just changes the whole quality and context of my like lived experience to be able to shift. And I like that, you know, take so much time, whatever time it takes, like it's the best journey to make your past something that that you can reflect on and and at least know that you've learned from even if maybe you wish it was different but um just be super grateful for it as as well as understanding that you know there's nothing you can do about it i like oprah's quote like forgiveness is letting go of the idea that the past could have been any different right just let go of that idea stop being resistant to reality in that way totally and i have two quick thoughts on this and one is that, you know, back to the idea that time is, is holistic and that I'm certainly not saying that you change the events that occurred, but you are changing the story. And, and that story is the identity of the past and also how you identify with it. And one of the things about post-traumatic growth, which I'm hearing in your story is, is that you look on the past and, and essentially you take an experience because we all have experiences, right? You don't actually have access to any of my experiences and I don't have access to any of your experiences. You can tell me about your experience about, for example, that night of falling asleep or, or of, you know, not remembering that night, but I don't have access to that. I can only <laughs> hear your story of it. Right. And so you, and so I, I've thought a lot about what's the difference between a good experience and a bad experience. And it really has to do with the value you place on it. So it's like, if you increase the value of that experience by saying, you know, how can I make this useful? In other words, how can I make this an asset where I'm grateful for it? I've learned from it. And now it helps my present and future. And so this is the idea of really, you're actually recontextualizing it. And, and the context really actually is the story. When you say framing, like you're, you're talking about the context and the context shapes the meaning of the content. And so when I'm saying story, I'm really saying you change the context and that, and I, I'm going straight back to Ellen Langer. The context is really what you're being mindful of. You're reshaping the context, which changes the content. And so when you focus on the past in that way, then it can it can change your goals for the future. So this is the idea of time is holistic again. When you go back and, and reframe the past and, and get new value out of it, and you're grateful for it, but also you're empathetic towards your past self, that person who overdrank at the bar. And you say that, I also actually like the quote, there are no mistakes in life, only lessons but lessons are repeated until they're learned. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, and so I, I don't even view it as it was a mistake from your past self, but it was a choice you made based on reasons. And they're not the same reasons or choices you'd make today because you're not the same person and you've got a different perspective and you 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 have a different vantage point. So you're not going to do that. But when you quote unquote post-traumatic growth, your past where you've looked at it, you gain value from it, and now it changes your purpose for the future. That changes your future by transforming your past in, in terms of the story, the meaning of it. Now you've transformed your future. Now, as you said, you went back, healed the past, learned from it, thought through it. Now it's like, oh, I can really use this to help other people. Now it's actually changing your goals. Now it's changing your future self. And so this is why I view the past and the future as a draft. Like as a writer, I'm I'm fine with a crappy draft of a book. Like I'm totally fine writing a junky draft, knowing that I'm going to go back through it and clean it up and clean it up again and again and again. So I look at the past that same way. And I can redraft that story. I can redraft it with new perspective when I have a little bit more knowledge and wisdom, maybe in a week from now or a year from now, I'm always going to be redrafting it and getting more and more from it and making it better. Only other thing I want to say on this real quick is it helps to see the difference between your current and your past self. So Robert Keegan is a Harvard psychologist and he wrote a book called Immunity to Change. If you haven't read this one, I love it. You look like you're shaking your head, but what he talks about is, is that we... We may have changes that we consciously want to make. Like, for example, I want to quit drinking. That's something we want to do, but we actually have a built-in system that's designed to stop us from making that change. That's why he calls it the immunity to change. We have a built-in immunity to the changes we want to make, and that that immunity system is called our subconscious. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I recently heard was, the system is designed to defend the system. Mm -hmm. And so one of the systems is your subconscious, which is actually your past self, and how Robert Keegan defines um, the past self is hidden commitments. We all have hidden commitments. Uh, one hidden commitment that I might have is, is that, you know, if I'm in a social setting and I'm anxious, like I'm going to grab a drink so that I don't have to feel anxious. That might be some commitment I made in the past, which is a part of my former identity and now a part of my subconscious. So that when I'm in a social setting now, um, and I start to feel anxious, boom, the past self kicks in and subconsciously I go grab a drink because I had some hidden commitment that I'm never going to feel anxious in social settings. And so I, the only reason I bring all this up is, is that it really helps to unwind the hidden commitments you've made in the past that are driving who you are now and saying, I don't need to stay committed to that idea anymore, or I don't need to stay committed to even that way of being or that relationship. That's not who I was, even though, sure, that's who I, that, sorry, that's not who I am. That's who I was, but that's not who I am anymore. And who do I want to be? It's my future self. Well, I love that so much. It's, it's so powerful. And I love that book. That book is really, um, it actually That's an important one. Yeah, it's, it's great. And it's, it's so, um, it's so important. There's, there's so much work, I think in, in coaching fields and psychology fields that it is really dealing with the conscious thoughts because you can find a lot of relief with your conscious thinking. The problem is you can't really find long-term change. It, it's very difficult unless you kind of drop down into the subconscious. And so and, and the funny thing about the subconscious, especially that quote, you just said the system's defined, like created to defend the system. We almost need a backdoor access, right? Like Byron Katie has people judge their neighbor, or we have to look at, you know, we, we have to find clues because it's not conscious. So it's, it's almost like we need this, this backdoor access to even find those things that are kind of running our show that are, are preventing us from changing, which is, which is awesome. And, and, important because otherwise, yeah, change will fall flat or you'll change one habit, but then you'll just replace it with an, another thing because you haven't actually solved the, the root cause, the reason you're self-medicating in the first place. 
I want to back all the way up to something you said just offhandedly sort of the beginning. And you're like, you know, I don't believe once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And I, I just wanted to, to comment on this and give you kind of the perspective that the snake in mind has just for any further thoughts that, that you can add to it. But we actually, like, I actually think that that term, I think the term and the identity of alcoholic is, is really pretty toxic. I think mm. that the the reality is that that term has not been really medically or scientifically defined. It, it was not created in the medical or scientific community. It was kind of a, it was kind of a term that was very, uh, you know, just uh, what, what's the word when it's, it's just in the narrative and, and it, like we call it medically alcohol use disorder. But the problem with it is that what is believed by us humans about this term alcoholic is what you just said. Once you are one, you are always one. What that means is you have to abandon life as you know it. You have to go to meetings for the rest of your life. You are broken. You are diseased. You are abnormal. You can't drink in safety. And so the fear inherent in that term prevents change because people become unwilling to, if, if that's my choice, and I, I, this was my own personal experience, if, if it is my choice to say I'm an alcoholic and therefore I can change this, or to say I'm not an alcoholic, I'm going to just keep drinking. I actually had a friend who she went to AA, she got sober. And I was like, what about my drinking? I drink with you all the time. And she goes, Annie, I learned I was born this way. I'm an alcoholic. You're not. I didn't even think about changing my drinking despite pain for six more years after that conversation. And I think it predicates a rock bottom. I think that it creates negative emotion, which is completely now proven to be contrary to lasting behavior change. And so I speak out against that term sort of whenever I can to much chagrin from the recovery community. But I am curious, since you mentioned that offhandedly, what are your thoughts? It reminds me of a few things. One is fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Obviously, if you have a fixed mindset, you've overly, con you've kind of made your identity into concrete. This is who I am. This is who I'll always be. And, and there's a lot of research that shows when you have a fixed mindset, you actually have a fragile identity. And when, what that means is that when you hit any forms of resistance or challenge or failure, rather than being anti-fragile where that stuff makes you stronger and better, you know, you turn it into this is happening for me. You actually become fragile where any form of seeming failure or difficulty actually shatters you because you've overly solidified yourself. So you're, you're essentially brittle with that mindset, but it also fails to discount like how transformable people are. And so like, I'll give an example. Like I look at 10X, just using that language, 10X is going from one level of being to another level. So it's not always quantitative. So I look at going from crawling to walking as a 10X. But if, you, if you're now a walker and you say, yeah, but I'm always a crawler. Like once a crawler, always a crawler. You know what I mean? Like that's just who, you know, that's who I am at the core. Yeah, you see me walking, but the truth is, is I'm a crawler and, and that's, that's in me. That's who I'll always be. I can't, you know, you put me in the right situations. I'm going to revert back to that crawling self and like, it's going to be bad. It's like, no, actually you did go through a fundamental transformation. You now walk and you're not going to go back to crawling. Um, that's not to say you can't go back to an addiction, but you're going to, you're going to be a different person going back into that addiction for different reasons. Um, and so yeah, I look at I look at it that way where um I'm not my past self and my current self fundamentally is different from who I was even a year or 3 or 4 years ago. I have a different model, a different viewpoint, a different identity, I have a different context. Um and so I'm not going to go back. Um I may in the future due to challenges 
and lack of coping go into similar unhealthy behaviors or even different unhealthy behaviors to cope back to Hal Hirschfeld's research, overly magnifying the challenges of the present and my emotions of the present and therefore shifting into something unhealthy. But I don't think you can go. Uh, yeah. So just to your point, I don't like, I'm very weary of labels in general. Like I like, I like to quote labels, create limitations. Um, that, that had a lot to do with personality isn't permanent by the way. And, and I'll just kind of share this quick final thought here is, is there's a massive difference between the concept or the construct of identity and personality. And when people focus on personality, they tend to focus on traits. Um, for example, introversion, extroversion. And this is where all these labels come in, alcoholic, um, you know, disorganized. And the the truth is, is that personality from a psychological standpoint is kind of like the surface. It's like the crust, whereas the identity is more the core. And, and identity is, is the driver of personality. Um, but identity often comes from the story, which is the narrative, which is the labels you may place upon yourself. And so your identity drives your personality. But if your identity is shaped by labels of your past, then you're going to be driving a personality that maybe looks more like your past. From my standpoint, personality is a very um, non-useful concept to work on. Um, it's, 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 it, it changes over time. It changes very quickly by situation by situation. Um, if you want to work on your personality, you can, but that's kind of like working on cosmetics. Um, you're so much better focusing on the core, which is your identity which is really um, re-clarifying the story, transforming your past, clarifying your future self, uh, upgrading your standards, your floor and your ceiling, um, like who you want to say, what you want to say yes to, what you want to say no to. It takes a lot more thoughtfulness, intention, and it's a lot more deep inner work to focus on your identity. Um, and so that's kind of how I see that. Gosh, it's, it's so aligned. I mean, it, one of the first things that in any of our programs and that people come in, and the first message that I help people internalize by providing scientific research basis for this idea is that you're not broken, that your brain is actually doing exactly what it's supposed to do in that level of stress with that level of substance that has addictive qualities that creates responses in the brain. Like the brain is, is actually functioning perfectly. Like you're not broken. And the and, brain is anti-fragile. Right. Right. The brain is like you, my friend, Laura McCowan, she says you are the luckiest like when you've been through this level of, of, you know, the traumatic experience of being addicted to something and growing out the other side, or even the process of growing out the other side, you do become so much more anti-fragile through the cracks, through the healing, right? It's, it's a really powerful thing. And the brain is transformable. That's why they call it plastic neuroplasticity because it can change and transform fundamentally. It's just amazing. I want to switch gears completely for the last few minutes we have, which is I'm going to go back to uh, one of your books that I just feel like it's so aligned, which is willpower doesn't work. So can you, can you give us the, the high level concepts of, of what you dug into with your research in that book? Yeah. I mean, I think it's always good to kind of go back to the frame of mind of when that book was written. So I wrote that book in 2017. It came out in early 2018. And the frame of mind that I had at that point in time was I was very motivated to get myself into the right environments. Um, like I wanted to get around the right types of people because I really was just motivated to become, becoming an entrepreneur. And I was also studying evolutionary psychology a lot and a lot of evolution. And also I, even what I was sharing with you with the Ellen Langer research on, on context. And honestly, even how psychologists view people a lot is, is that it's the context or the macro that shapes what happens in the micro. Mm -hmm. um, the mic and, and 
And so, and also I came from a massively traumatic background. My father was an extreme drug addict, meth addict, stuff like that. My brother, my younger brother, who's I'm the oldest of three boys. Um, my brother has dealt with addiction enormously for so many years. And, and so that book was honestly like a, a, a like a letter in a bottle to my brother, truly. Um, because I, I view my younger brother as someone who is one of the most talented, skilled, brilliant, beautiful people I know. And who has been uh, a, a lot of ways stymied by obviously addiction, but on the macro of that, by the people around him. It's just one example, the context around him. And so what I was thinking about with that book was is that, I mean, it wasn't really a book about addiction, although I do look at life through the lens of addiction. Um, it was really a, a book about making progress. And, and that so much of the topics and conversation are focused on behavior. And, and for me, that's the micro. And so I really wanted to give a macro perspective of before you even start focusing on like gritting your teeth and willpowering your way to forcing yourself to behave in certain ways, let, let's, re, let's like focus on the, on the context, right? Let's focus on the design. Like one could be, for example, recontextualizing your past, which would be healing trauma. I don't even really go into that in the book. But I just talk about the broader context of your life, who you're surrounding yourself with, what you're doing on a daily basis, what's around you, um, like focusing on the micro first. Like if you've got, you know, unhealthy food in the kitchen, chances are you're at some point going to be triggered and out of convenience, you're going to grab it because in some situation, emotionally, that's going to be the easiest behavior to go to. And so this was just kind of a, an invitation to look more contextually and look more macro rather than focusing behaviorally on on the behaviors and so I, my view is willpower one one last thing is is willpower is the opposite of identity willpower means you're actually operating against your identity you still identify as that alcoholic but you're trying to behave against that identity whereas once you shift the identity um it stops really being about willpower now you're operating in alignment with who you are and so yeah i just think that willpower it just doesn't, it, it's not, it's obviously a poor approach to addiction, but it's also just a poor approach to any form of behavior because it's not sustainable. And it's honestly, it's kind of battling against yourself. It's, it's mind blowing to me because I feel like my work has proven your book because we literally come in and it's like, I describe willpower as imagine that I think the most painful thing for us to witness as human beings is somebody's will being subverted. And you can imagine that like, you know, a child's will being subverted or somebody being sold or like when somebody loses their will to another person, we see that. And that is, that is evil to us. It is evil. It is toxic. It is so painful for us to witness that happening or for that to happen to us. Right. And so if the, the idea of willpower is I'm going to take my own will and I'm going to subvert it. I'm going to exert power over myself in this way that is so painful. And so like when we think about it that way, it's like it like almost becomes a bad word in in my work. And yes, I understand that sometimes we have to act before we feel it. Yes, I understand that there's some instances of that. But the reality for me is that when we think about uh, behavior change, behavior is the wrong place to start. It always has been. <laughs> And behavior when, is the surface. Behavior has nothing like it's mind boggling to me that the entire rehabilitation industry 
marks it a success if you're not drinking, but you're still miserable. You can be not drinking and suicidal, you're a success. You can be not doing drugs and completely miserable in your life, and it's a success. And how I describe this is, is basically a four-step process that is just mirrored after this idea of, you know, unconscious incompetence, you move to mm, mm, mm. conscious incompetence, then you move to conscious competence. And that conscious competence where you're doing the thing, your behavior is changing, but you have to use willpower. You have to consciously mark that behavior change every single time. I was like, we would never stop there in any other growth narrative. You would never stop there walking because then you would never learn how to run. You would never stop there. You would never stop there. But in our industry, you stop. That's where there. it stops. That's where it stops. It's a it really, really so good point, Annie. Cool. I'm telling you, that is such an, uh, an innovative insight into that whole world of addiction that it all stops and celebrates getting to conscious competence where yeah. it's, yeah, rather than getting the point of unconscious competence where you've literally evolved the subconscious and now you're operating from a new identity and a new system, right? The system's designed to defend the system, but I think that's beautiful. I'm so glad so that you brought that up. Go like ahead, please continue. Yeah. Asleep, which is unconscious incompetence. And then you yep. become aware and that's a radically painful transition, right? To go from not knowing that alcohol is a problem to knowing that alcohol is a problem, but having no, no way to handle it. Totally painful. But then you're aware and you can't solve a problem. We started everything with telling the truth, core premise of 10X, yeah. right? Solve a problem you can't have. Then you move to awake, which is you're conscious and you're changing, but you can't stop there. And then I, I put unconscious competence at a live. And that's living because when you're alive, then everything else can build on top of that. Then alcohol becomes small and irrelevant. Then there's no need to go to meetings for the rest of your life. Then it's not your identity. That's where freedom is. And that entire process, that move from awake to alive, and it, it only happens with identity shift and emotional shifts. That's the only place it will happen. It will never happen with willpower. And so it, it was just like, for me, like my work just proves your work in such a big way. And I was just like, oh, I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Well, you're a deep practitioner and you're a deep student, you know, a deep thinker. And uh, you're obviously someone who's obviously experienced it well as well. I, I love that so much of our work collides at similar models because I mean, that, that uh, you know, conscious incompetence model is something I think about so much. And I, I always, whenever I'm trying to develop mastery in something, obviously want to develop it to a place where, you know, I go from doing something consciously to getting to the place where it becomes the new identity, the new system, like the new operating system. But you want to develop, I guess, what would be called psychological flexibility, where even though I'm now living at a new level, I'm also designing a system that at some point I will outgrow and that even that system is going to be de designed to defend itself. But I, I just love how you frame things. And, and I love the idea of being alive because being alive means you're actually operating without needing to edit everything you're doing, without needing to check and without need, you know, uh, without needing to be overly conscious about every decision you make, you are literally in flow and you're just being. And I think that that should be the goal, like rather than the goal being that I can micromanage all my behaviors, right? Which would probably be a lot of the goals of, of, uh, of addiction circles. It's like, no, the goal is, is that you don't have to micromanage all your behaviors anymore because it's not even hitting your radar anymore because it's no longer even a part of who you are anymore. It doesn't even hit your attention span anymore. Like, because now you're living and operating, you know, from a totally different space and in a different space. Yeah. And, and not saying that it's easy to get there. I mean, it's deep work. No, I mean, that's, <laughs> and you, that's why you said it's emotional. I mean, right. that, that, I think that has a lot to do with the 
all progress starts by telling the truth, the emotion, uh, the facing the emotions and transforming them of the past, reframing them so that what was once pain becomes gratitude and healing and also the willingness to approach the future. But yeah, I mean, so much of it is in, in my view is emotional development. And I think that's, that's a really a big part of addiction in general is, is that because you are not deeply emotionally developed, when you feel some sort of negative emotion, some form of anxiety or stress, rather than learning how to face it, absorb it, deal with it, transform it in a, in a proactive way, you react or you avoid and you shift to some numbing agent, right? That allows you in the presence to not deal with it. And which is honestly just a, a lack of emotional development. And so, yeah, emotional continuously, continuously evolving yourself emotionally and growing in that way. I look at emotional development and spiritual development as two, two sides of, of the same coin. Yeah. Um, they're very similar and learning emotionally to reach a place of peace and calmness, even in storms is, is, is par for the course. Yeah. I, I love that. And, you know, the process to move through that, you know, in our, in our path program, which is our year long kind of signature program, they, they join, they get a stone from me that actually has the word alive on it and a letter describing so the process beautiful. and kind of where they're going and, and the process to move through that. Like I said, we start the whole thing with two months of not thinking about your behavior behavior becomes, and I'm like, at the end of this, and it's it's funny because we have done efficacy studies and they've been really mind-blowing in terms of how, you know, 54% of people stop drinking, 36% of people drink less. Um, so it's collective like 90% behavior change. But the reality is the efficacy study, it is hard because I was like, what's important to me isn't your behavior. I don't actually care if you're still drinking. Like you can I think, still- I, I think that that's really important. I think that's very wise because the behavior will trend it'll take care of itself as you're trending the, the bigger ship, which is the steering wheel, right? Which is your identity, those emotional deep work. You know, that's the steering wheel. <laughs> the identity is just the direction the boat's currently going, but the steering wheel is the deeper stuff that you're talking about. And you're like, I'm working on the steering wheel. The, the behavior will take care of itself as we're turning the boat. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think that brings us back to sort of where we started this conversation, which is at the end of the day, you can trust yourself first. Because if you are holding the steering wheel, the higher you, the conscious you, the you that actually has, has taken the time to write a different narrative of their past, has taken the time to understand, and you know the you that you really actually know yourself to be if you get quiet, that, that you that's always present. If, if that you is, is the one driving the boat, then like, yeah, nothing else matters. Like, and, and as human beings, we have been brainwashed to believe we can't trust ourselves first. And I think some of the entire narrative of the traditional recovery industry is that you can't don't trust, trust yourself. yourself. Don't trust yourself. And then when you do realize you can trust yourself first, and even if that takes what we call data points, which they call relapse, right? It's just data. Like we're just learning. It's just a journey. And even if you trust yourself first, when you, when you reach that place of aliveness or freedom, then you're absolutely right. You're not worried about, you know, are, is there going to be alcohol here? You're not even thinking about it. You're not worried about what am I going to do in this situation? What am I going to do in that situation? And you just go on to, to being who you're supposed to be in the world. And so it's, it's really, really, yeah, it's just incredible how aligned it's like, you're talking about entrepreneurship, but I'm like, I have to have them on because it's just like, we're talking the same language. So powerful. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like 10X is easier than 2X is really a psychology book at the end of the day. Yes, I go into entrepreneurial strategy and honestly, even decision-making strategy and leadership, but I, that's why I view it as honestly a 10X psychology, which is, uh, and, and I even view leadership 
as starting with the self. And even you could say starting with your relationship with yourself and with God, but leadership is fundamentally about trust. If you're, if you ever dig into leadership, it's all about trust and trusting yourself, beginning to trust other people and ultimately becoming someone that other people trust and, and, and helping other people trust themselves more and trust and love are very similar concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, when you start really loving yourself, you'll start to trust yourself more. And there's a, you know, this is more like spiritual slash gospel, but like, there's that whole phrase of Christ where he says, we love him because he first loved us. And so it's like, once you start to feel someone else's love or even your own love or someone else's love, like what, if me as an example, as a parent, if I really, really love my kids and they really feel that love, that love is going to lead them to trusting me. Like if I really feel God's love, then I'm going to start to love God and I'm going to start to trust God. Right. And, and, and then the behavior is going to change anyways, because then I trust God rather than operating out of mistrust. Or if I trust myself and I love myself, then that's going to lead me to different actions and behaviors than if I don't trust myself. If I don't, don't love myself, don't trust myself. Then it's like, I'm always like questioning myself. And like, this is like a, a really Jacqueline Hyde relationship. Yeah. Two, two things to say on that. One is that in order to get to that place of trust in yourself, you really do. Jacqueline Hyde is a perfect descriptor. You need to be able to find out which voice to listen to. And it's usually neither of the voices, right? It, it's somewhere in between because I had this, this pretty radical experience recently of kind of, you know, um, going back and, and finding places where I remember just beating myself up about my drinking. I remember being so angry with myself and I was listening to the voices in my head and the voice that was telling me not to drink was probably the most punishing, toxic voice that I've ever heard. What's wrong with you? You're broken. This is disgusting. I can't believe lack, you. Big lack of love. Lack of love, punishing, toxic hating myself voice, but it was telling me the right behavior. Right. And the voice course, that was like, of course. it's okay. Um, you're doing the best you can. Don't worry. Like we'll try this again tomorrow. You know, you'll fix this. The, the voice that was enabling me to drink was actually the loving voice. So, so both of those, but it's like, okay, how can you trust yourself until you actually calm those voices? And this third voice emerges this, this more true voice for you. And I think what you said about trust and self-compassion, if the whole journey is to trust yourself first, starting with self-compassion is so powerful. And what you said about God is also, I think, true. Like, how can we put you in a community or put you in an environment? Because people say, well, how do I do that? I hate myself. You don't understand how much I hate myself. And by the way, I have mountains of evidence for why. And so how can we put you in a community where you can learn compassion by two, two things? When you hate yourself so much, you can't get any movement. You can learn it by having it for other people because that's always easier. It's that backdoor access to, to like the whole narrative, right? Have it for other people and by showing up and being vulnerable and letting other people have it for you. And then it starts to chip away at this like rigidity of this because we think we're getting something from the self-hatred. We think it's this self-hatred that's somehow protecting us from going completely off the rails, right? Which is always a lie, but... Anyway, yeah, it's just I think that uh, Joe says it really well. He says you can never punish yourself into <laughs> into healing. You know, yeah. I mean, like, um, but I also think about that with framing the past, right? Like how you look at your past is largely going to shape what you expect for your future. And so if you're always viewing the past from a negative perspective, um, rather than uh, seeing the changes, seeing that you're not your past self and, and, and turning whatever occurred into purpose, meaning growth that happened for you. And you begin to see evidences 
even of your own future self in your past and say, Oh, look at the progress I've made. Look at, and, and, and compassion for your past. Like, that's why I, I think it's really powerful to have a positive, like a, a, an increasingly better story about the past and increasingly bigger story about the future. But as you know, as you make your past better, um, you'll start to see a bigger future just organically for yourself. And so, I mean, I look at my own past, my own experiences and my own events of addiction, and also whether that be self-sabotage or even my best successes that, I want to look at the past in a way that supports the future I want to create. So, yeah. yeah. I love that. So I usually end these podcasts by asking, uh, usually it's stories of, of people who have sure. kind of been through it, but I usually ask the question, like, what would you yourself now tell, tell the part of you, tell yourself in the past that was struggling. And um, I'm going to ask it to you in a different way because you do so much okay. work with future self. So what would your future self then tell your present day self about, what, what do you need to know? That's a really cool question. Beautiful question. And it really hits at all the research on future self, which is getting connected to your future self and, and, and hearing their voice um, more than even your current self's voice. And so thank you for that. Uh, I think what my future self would be saying to me now is certainly they love me. Um, uh, I am doing better than I think I am. And I, like to your point, I know what to do. I know what to do. Yeah, I think my future self is massive cheering me on. Biggest cheerleader ever. And in more granular, specific terms, like if I really tap into that, which connects with everything you said about trusting yourself, you know, the right pathways begin to show up, whether it's the right opportunities, write that book or don't write that book, you know? And so listening to the future self really helps me ask myself, am I doing this out of, out of fear or, or even ego or you know, is this what I truly want? And so listening to the future self also invites me in a more practical sense to, to look at maybe the things I'm entertaining, whether they're opportunities or options and say, is that past reasons been for, for going down that path path, or do you want to really connect with a higher purpose? So yeah, it's beautiful. Well, what you said about I'm doing better than I think I am. I think we can all just like that as like a mantra for, for the rest of the day, week, year, I'm going to cling on to that. And your future I, self will say that to you. And I promise you, that's what they'll say to you. Yeah, it's powerful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has just been an incredible conversation as I knew. Love you, Annie. Love you. Love your work. Love, love this naked mind. It's just such important work. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're ready to see how this naked mind can help you on your personal health and wellness journey and want to learn more, Go to thisnakedmindpodcast.com to learn what your next best step is. Again, that's thisnakedmindpodcast.com. We have all of our free resources, programs, social links, and more available for you there. Plus, if you have your own naked life story to share, you can submit it there as well. Until next week, stay curious.